Some people believe that the Archangel Michael is actually a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. But if this is the case, there are many unanswered questions. Today we're going to see what scripture really has to say and set the record straight on this issue. everybody, welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander. I'm your host as always. Thanks so much for being with me today. Today we're continuing our series on Jesus and the Old Testament. So if you're just joining, make sure you check out some of those previous episodes because this will be kind of the last one in that chunk. We still have a few to finish this entire series. We're getting to the end now. I have just a handful of episodes for you. They're very interesting, very different kind of things that you probably haven't heard about online. We're going to talk about something called the monarchical trinity, um, you know, some various heresies that are out there. So very interesting episodes coming up. But today we have one more on this whole topic of Jesus in the Old Testament. We've looked at a lot of things like typology, the angel of Yahweh. We looked at the word and the name last week. Very interesting episodes. Again, to get a picture and a sense of who Jesus is from the Old Testament. Of course, you could spend, you know, probably you know, years and years studying the Old Testament. You still wouldn't understand all of it. There's so much hidden in there. It's truly profound. And so this is one of my favorite topics to study is just this idea of typology and pictures of Jesus. But nonetheless, some of those things are taken out of context. And, and people, you know, like we talked about in the typology episode, typology is really fun and it's really cool, but it's also something that can be taken you know, too liberally, or, or, you know, you can get too wrapped up in typology and create your own theologies that don't really exist. And so this is the topic of today. This was something that I was thinking about putting together with the angel of Yahweh, but I really, you know, I said, this is its own, it's its own thing because it really deserves a lot of commentary, which is this idea that Michael, the archangel, is actually a pre-incarnate form of Christ, a revelation of Christ in that sense. And so we're going to look at this today because a lot of people believe this. I, I shouldn't say like, like a lot, a lot, like, you know, billions of people or something like that. But really there are quite a few, especially like in the Seventh-day Adventist community, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, and probably some other people. I mean, I don't really know everybody who believes this, but there are lots of viewpoints online. Let's put it that way. And so today we want to really get clear on this issue of, is the Archangel Michael Jesus? And if not, why not? So again, if you're just joining, make sure you go watch those previous episodes and do subscribe on my website, danceoflife.com. That's going to help you first and foremost, get alerts of my new content. I don't know if YouTube censors things. So ultimately I've had people tell me they don't see my content sometimes. And also very importantly, you're going to be able to watch my podcasts ad-free. I don't have ads on my Substack or my website, basically, because that's what it's linked to. Whereas YouTube, either where you monetize or not, they're still going to put ads on your stuff. So I just, I hate YouTube. I hate ads. <laughs> I'm on there because it's, you know, it's a chance to spread your message to other people. So, but make sure you stay connected through my website. That's the best way to stay connected because as time goes on, these platforms will be censoring more and more people more and more people, and you just can't trust them. You can't trust those sneaky platforms. So moving on, today we're talking about this idea of Archangel Michael. We're also going to look at something called the principle of agency, which is something that a lot of Unitarians bring up, and it's appropriate now to discuss. I was going to talk about it with the angel of Yahweh, but I decided to save it for today. It'll be just a nice little wrap-up with all of these different episodes. But the principle of agency is very important because a lot of people believe that well, you'll understand what it is when we get to it. Basically, it's the idea that a messenger speaks on behalf of the person sending them and can't be confused with that person. So basically, this idea is used to try to refute the notion that the angel of Yahweh is not Yahweh, that he's just kind of like a messenger. And of course, if you were there with me a couple of weeks ago and we did the angel of Yahweh episode, you know that just, that's just not true. Because the angel of Yahweh is a very unique figure. We're going to look at it again today. It's a very unique figure in the Old Testament. It's a figure that receives worship, that claims to be God, that claims God's actions. And very, again, just very unique figure. Very different from every other messenger or agent that God uses. So very interesting. These things, I think, are very important because most, 
the my goal today is really that you learn good Bible interpretation principles. It's not so much to know every single detail about Archangel Michael today or even the principle of agency. Like, I don't really personally care if you even know those terms, like the principle of agency. You don't need to know that. But it is interesting. And I think if you like those things, then you should study it. But the real thing is extracting from today, how do I interpret the Bible correctly? How do I build a case for something? How do I examine a claim and tear it apart, put it back together, that kind of thing. How do I know if something holds water or not? This is the thing, because we're living in the last days. We're living in the days where deception is at a maximum. It's, you know, where basically there are many false teachings, false teachers, false prophets, all the things that the apostles and Jesus warned us about. There's a lot of opinions online. <laughs> How do you know if they're true or not? Well, everything that you will find here and all the episodes I do, I do them extremely thoroughly for a reason. Because that way you have evidence. You don't just believe what I say. You have evidence and you build a case. You can examine the case that I build and you can cross-examine it with scripture, with history. If In this case, history is not so much applicable, but there are some historical points that are important. For example, actually, there is one in this particular topic, which is the idea of two powers in heaven. The idea that, that, that Yahweh is multipersonal. This is not a Catholic conspiracy. This is not a Trinitarian conspiracy. This is not a modern invention. The idea of two powers in heaven was created by the Jews, by the Israelites. The people who worship God in the Old Testament believed that God was multipersonal because of the angel of Yahweh. So they, they believed that the angel of Yahweh was God and also there was an like a immaterial Yahweh that you couldn't see. They, we even looked at the word, that the word that John speaks of in John 1, 1 as being God, but also distinct from God, that's a Jewish invention. That's a that's an idea, the memra, that the Israelites had to to deal with the Old Testament, with with the idea that well, you have God who you can't see, who is beyond space and time, but then you have God who's interacting in the world. Well, how does that work? Well, you must have multi-personhood in, in God, within God. He must be plural. And that is a an Israelite understanding that was there for hundreds of years. And when Christianity came to the scene and Jesus was basically promoted as God, as, as that God that came to earth to forgive sins, oh, that's a real problem for the Jews that rejected Jesus. And so they declared it a heresy. So that's a historical fact that is very relevant to our case today that you have to consider. So if you believe that the Archangel Michael is Jesus, or if you believe that the angel of Yahweh isn't God, then you're not aligning with the Old Testament, the Hebrews that or the Israelites that basically believed that he was, because he's a very unique agent. It's not just an agent like Moses. So we're going to look at that today. We have a lot of great, interesting things to look at, but... Our, our main goal is to find out why not. Why or why not is this the case with Michael being Jesus? Now, a lot of people believe this in the Adventist community, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of other people, I'm sure, online. There's just a lot of views online, and many of them take things out of context. Now, with Jehovah's Witnesses, they're, they're not Trinitarians, they're Unitarians. They, they don't believe in a trinity. They don't believe in the divinity of Christ which, by the way, is why they get snared into a works-based religion, because without the divinity of Christ, you don't have a gospel. You really don't. Unitarians are the same way. You can't, you can't have grace if Jesus is not the divine God who paid for your sins with his eternal blood. <laughs> you, can't, you can't have that through a created being. You can't vindicate the name of God, Romans 5, or maybe it's Romans 3. I'm getting it mixed up. Either way, it's in Romans you can't vindicate the name of God with a created being. For all the sins that God passed over for thousands and thousands of years, are you kidding me? And he didn't destroy the world? To have a created being to, to basically vindicate that name? No, no way. You have to have God vindicate God's name, and that's why Jesus is God. But Seventh-day Adventists say they believe in the Trinity, but they say it's just a different name for Jesus. So, you know, that was Jesus in the Old Testament, but then now in the New Testament, he's Jesus. So it was Michael, but then Jesus. 
And some reasoning for that is that there are several instances in the Old Testament where Michael appears and he seems to have authority of some kind. And in the New Testament, Michael doesn't appear any longer. So there you go. It must be, that just must be Jesus in the Old Testament. Now there's implications for believing these things. There's a lot of unanswered questions if that's the case. So we're going to look at this in detail. Again, my goal is less that you memorize these points or you know what principle of agency is or, you know, whatever else. My goal is that you see, okay, here's a claim and what's wrong with it? And how do we unpack this? And how do we build a counterclaim and really interpret scripture correctly? So the first response that I have is regarding the name, the name of Michael versus the name of the angel of Yahweh. Now, Michael has a proper name. It's a proper name. Michael is a proper name. The angel of Yahweh does not have a proper name. The angel of Yahweh is just labeled by function and origin. Now, remember from the episode on this where the angel is just malak. It just means like somebody delivering a message. It doesn't say their rank. It doesn't say their power. It doesn't say their authority. It just says, it's just like literally a physical delivery person. It could, that person could be the son of God delivering the message to you from God, the father. You don't know who it is. And he's called the angel of Yahweh to tie him to God specifically. There's no other angel or messenger in the Bible, New Testament or Old Testament, that has that distinct title connected to Yahweh. In Exodus, Yahweh says that he's put his name in that angel and that we should obey him, which of course, if you don't believe in a trinity or the plurality of God, you have a real problem because God is asking you to break the first commandment, which God would never do. So this is why, again, the Jews believe in two powers in heaven. But angel, the angel of Yahweh doesn't have a name. Michael has a proper name. We know that the names of eternal beings, I mean, Michael is not self-existent, but he was created and he's living forever. He's a, he's a spiritual principality. He's not going to change his name. We assume that the archangel Michael's still existing because the, he wouldn't change his name. If, if Michael's name, had, if Michael had a proper name, which he did, he wouldn't suddenly change his name to Jesus in the New Testament. There's no biblical precedent for that at all. Jacob changed, Jacob had his name changed, but God changed his name. And it was very obvious. It was for a purpose. So for, if, if Jesus's name first was Michael, why would that be the case in the first, in the first place? But again, it's like your name doesn't change. And so if his name did change, why was that never announced? Why was it never, you know, it just, it, it doesn't make sense with the progressive revelation of the name of God, which we'll look at in just a second. Because Jesus has a proper name and Michael has a proper name. Names don't really change. Like, especially when you're dealing with very significant people like Jesus and Michael. Michael's significant too. He's an archangel. So both have proper names, meaning they're both separate people. Now, the angel of Yahweh doesn't have a name. And there are instances that... That at first, like when he wrestled with Jacob and Jacob asked for his name, he said, why do you ask my name? So at first it would be like, okay, if you just had that verse without any other context, you would say, well, maybe he doesn't have a name. Maybe he's just, he's, that's just like a physical manifestation of only one God. There is one God actually. That's the whole point is, but that God exists in multi-plurality and multi-persons. So meaning... The angel of Yahweh is just a manifestation of the one person of God, which would be like a Unitarian type of perspective because he doesn't have a name. But then you have other situations where he does reveal his name. In Exodus, the angel of Yahweh appears to Moses and reveals his name. I am who I am. Ego e mi I am the being one or Eye Asher Eye in Hebrew, which is... It's hard to translate, but it's like, I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. Very specific name that he reveals. In the book of Judges, Manoah asks the angel of Yahweh for his name. And he says, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? So he has a name, but that name isn't like fully revealed. It's, it's just so magnificent that it's not time yet for humanity to receive that name. So if the 
angel of Yahweh didn't have a name, then he wouldn't have responded the way he did, both to Moses and both to Manoah. Very important, because obviously he does have a personal name, but just that name was hidden. It was going to be revealed, and it's going to be, it was revealed in Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior, which means salvation. So ultimately, all these things were building up for the time when the name of God, you could put a, a face to a name, which is in the New Testament. So obviously he did have a name, obviously he did reveal it, but now we have a problem because Michael, Michael, the, the name, the personal name Michael means warrior of God. But Yahweh, which is really kind of a consolidation of the original name that the angel of Yahweh gave to Moses, which is Eye Asher Eye, it's a consolidation, we looked at that. By the way, Yahweh means like basically I am self-existent. So you have two different things going on here. We know that Jesus claimed self-existence in John chapter 8, where he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. Now, what he was doing there was very intentional. He was appropriating the name that the angel of Yahweh revealed about himself, which is self-existence. I am that I am. He was appropriating that in Greek to himself. That's why they picked up stones to stone him, because they got what's going on. Like, you're claiming to be God. You're making yourself equal to God. You're saying you're self-existent? What? And so now we have a connection between Jesus, the angel of Yahweh, and you have Michael over here who has his own personal name. Of course, you have other places. We looked at this in the episode on what Jesus said about himself, like Revelation 1, 17 through 18. And so many other places. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the living one. He's saying what Yahweh says in the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh. But Yahweh is multipersonal. Yahweh is not just one person. Yahweh is three persons. And we'll look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament next time so we can see how all these things tied together, both in the New and the Old. But nonetheless, now you have a series of connections. Jesus claims pre-existence, he makes a connection to himself and Yahweh many times, obviously, very clear. But Michael, Michael's name is warrior of God. So it's, you have two different distinct people. The angel of Yahweh is consistent with Jesus and Jesus is consistent with the angel of Yahweh. Michael is his own person. Based on the names and based on what was revealed, Michael's not connected to self-existence. Michael is not connected to the angel of Yahweh and certainly Jesus never said anything that would connect him back to the angel or the archangel Michael. And Michael doesn't really say much in the Old Testament anyway. Not like the angel of Yahweh who's around all the time and interacting with humanity. So it's very, you start to see these varying points of difference that again, it's just like, it starts to lose credibility, the idea that the archangel Michael is Jesus. Now, the second point is on authority. So some people think that there are points in the Old Testament where Michael seems to have authority, so it just must be Jesus. So for this, we're going to head to Scripture to really look at how Michael interacts. Now, in Jude 1, verse 9, he writes, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, this, this episode is not really recorded in Scripture anywhere, but obviously it was within their oral tradition, or basically, you know, it was something that they knew happened. He's describing Archangel contending for the body of Moses, and basically the, the Archangel Michael says, you know, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I'm not going to rebuke you. I don't have authority to rebuke you. You know, he's saying the Lord rebuke you. Later in Jude 20, in the same letter, this is also very important, in the, in the same letter later in verse 25, he says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So he's blessing them, you know, basically ending the letter. But why is this important? It's actually very important because now you have within the same letter a reference to two different people. Do you see how this works? In verse 9, he's talking about Michael contending with the body of Moses. Then in verse 25 at the end, he acknowledges Jesus as the Savior. 
Now, compare this to other letters. We're not going to go and compare it to other letters because, again, I've done this in other previous episodes, but where, for example, Paul refers to the rock being Christ, the one who basically followed them in the desert and how they tested him in the wilderness was Christ. Well, who, who was with them in the wilderness? It was Yahweh. It was the angel of Yahweh, actually. So other apostles have made the connection that the angel of Yahweh was actually a pre-incarnate form of Christ. Not Michael, but the angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh. And my point is this, in those other places where you see these things, these connections made, they appropriate Christ to those Old Testament pictures. They either use his proper name, or they say the, the personal pronoun, like he was, they tested him in the desert, or he endured them, right? These kind of things. So now, in the spirit of that style of writing, because all the apostles were of the same mind, that was Jesus' high priestly prayer anyway, and that was fulfilled. So we see that in the writings. Everything's consistent. So if you look in Jude now, and you see the mentioning of Michael by name, personal, and then at the end, the mentioning of Jesus by name, personal. Well, if Jesus was Michael, put it together now, put it all together. If Jesus was actually Michael, then why didn't the writer of Jude go and say when he was contending with the body of Moses or when Jesus was contending with the, with, the, um, with the devil over the body of Moses. Do you see the point? If it was actually Jesus who was contending with Satan over the body of Moses, and Michael was just a different name for Jesus, then mentioning Jesus again in the same chapter of the same letter doesn't make sense to name, to name them two different names. It really does. There's no other place in Scripture where this type of thing happens, where Jesus is being talked about but he's referred to by different names. Doesn't make doesn't make any sense. So it's not consistent at all with the writings of the apostles, and it's not consistent with common sense either. So do you see why this is important to see that that last verse where he mentions Jesus by name in the same verse that he mentions the archangel Michael? So archangel Michael is a different person, and he doesn't have authority. Doesn't have the same kind of authority. Now compare this to Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 2 through 4, where we have the same kind of situation, but with the angel of Yahweh. It's a vision, vision of Joshua the high priest. And and Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan. Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Very important things here. There's two things to take from this little passage in Zechariah, the vision that he had. The first is that he is personally rebuking Satan. Yahweh, now again, you have multi-personhood here. You have plurality. Because it says in verse 2, and the Lord, so which is Yahweh, and Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you. So Yahweh is speaking to Satan, but he's saying Yahweh rebuke you. So he's rebuking him in the name of Yahweh, even though Yahweh is speaking. Again, you have this, because the angel of Yahweh is speaking. And Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So he's Yahweh, and he's also rebuking in the name of Yahweh. Whereas Archangel Michael is not having that same level of authority. Now, the other thing that's very telling is that in verse 4, the angel commands to basically give him pure vestments, to basically forgive him his sins, to make him righteous. There is no passage anywhere that we see Archangel Michael doing any such thing, to forgive sins or to make somebody righteous. There's no vision in the entire... There's one in Revelation where John has a vision of you know, the Archangel Michael. Daniel, I believe, has a vision of Michael. But again, these visions are very, like, he's very impersonal. Michael's just doing stuff. You know, he's not, like, interacting and speaking and taking away sins or giving you white robes or doing all these, you know, very elaborate, intimate things. He's just kind of doing something. 
So he's seen from far away. So very different people. We're looking at two very different individuals that it's very clear are two different people in the scriptures. Now, we also know that the angel of Yahweh in other places does have authority for several reasons. Sodom and Gomorrah, he's the one who basically, and if you read in the Bible, it says, and Yahweh sent fire from Yahweh. So God sent judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah from God. Well, how do you, how do you understand that? If the angel of Yahweh is God, and also he's sending it from God, you have multi-personhood, plurality within Yahweh. You have judgment on the Egyptians. Of course, it was the angel of Yahweh who was doing all the, you know, basically coordinating with the Israelites and, and guiding them. He's the one who parted the sea, who closed the sea on the Egyptians. So you have authority of judgment. The angel of Yahweh receives worship. I think this is probably the strongest argument. Really, it is. He claims to be God and he claims God action. He claims God's actions. Now, these last two are probably the most important because you really, as a Unitarian, as somebody who, who says, oh, it's a principle of agency, he's just talking on behalf. Well, we're going to get to that because there's no agent in the history of the Bible that ever claimed to be God, that ever claimed God's actions for himself. And the most important, absolutely the most important, receives worship. Joshua worshiped the angel of Yahweh. We looked at that. What did the angel of Yahweh do? He say, no, don't do that. Remember the angel that visited John and John worshiped the angel or tried to at least. And the angel's like, don't do that. I'm just a fellow worker like you. But what did the angel of Yahweh do? He said, yeah, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. This is the same thing he said to Moses at the burning bush. So you have a being, a person that is receiving worship. Now, you can't explain. There's no, the other ones you could wiggle your way around, like with judgment. Okay, I, I can understand people can wiggle their way around that one. Claiming to be God, claiming God's action, that's a little harder to do, especially because Abraham and Jacob and Isaac all basically believe that the angel of Yahweh was Yahweh, not just like a messenger. So that's a little harder. But then the hardest one is Joshua worshiping the angel of Yahweh. You can't explain that through a Unitarian perspective. You just can't. Because no created being, God is not going, nobody worshiped Moses. Nobody worshiped Joshua. Nobody worshiped David. Had they done, David would have probably killed them. Like, how dare you worship me and bring sin upon Israel and God's wrath is going to come down and, and destroy us. Nobody would have done that. And nobody would have let other people do that. N none of these messengers and prophets and, and kings would have let people do that. So you have a serious problem with Joshua worshiping the angel of Yahweh. Because if the angel of Yahweh is not actually Yahweh and capable of receiving worship, and you're not breaking monotheism, you're not breaking the first commandment doing that, well, then now you have a problem because now you have Yahweh that you're worshiping here, but then Yahweh is also invisible and kind of everywhere and immaterial. So what's going on here? What's going on is Yahweh is plural. He's multipersonal. He's one being existing in plurality. How that works? It's a mystery of life. Get used to it. There's plenty of mysteries about God. He's self-existent. He's omniscient, omnipresent. If you can understand any of those things, then if I should say, if you can't understand any of those things, then What's the problem with understanding plurality within one being? So many people trip over that. I mean, it's just, it's really silly. But now we come to this idea of the, the war in heaven, which I'm going to preface this by, by saying, go check out my end time series. Go check out my end time series because there's a whole episode on this. We talk about right in the beginning called the binding of Satan. Is Satan bound now or in the future? There's a whole series episode that I devoted just to this topic of the war in heaven, because a lot of people have some crazy ideas about this war in heaven. A lot of people think that there was some pre-cosmic war, like the, the first earth age type of people where there's, they believe in like two creations. Mormons believe in this. There's some spiritual war, you know, some real like Unitarian type people, the sacred name type people believe in this. I mean, there's just so many perspectives online. 
I don't really know all of them, but ultimately the idea is that there was some pre-cosmic war and that forced God to create the world. And now people like you and me are basically just fallen angels reincarnated to, you know, earn God's favor again and basically give, we're given a second chance not to rebel. It's just, it's just so crazy, but because people like fairy tales, these things, these things are very seductive. And of course the Bible warns you about this. Second Timothy four, verse three, there'll time, there'll come a time where people have itching ears, keeping for themselves instructors to scratch their itching ears instead of adhering to sound doctrine. And we are in those times. But the war in heavens in Revelation 12, and it describes Michael basically fighting against Satan and kicking Satan out of heaven. And some people believe this is actually a future war. So either they believe it's super in the past, some pre-cosmic type of thing. And But again, I talk about this in the series, like Satan showed up in the heavenly council before God in the book of Job. Satan had authority and power over death as a result of the fall. He wasn't going anywhere until the cross. When the cross came and defeated his power, that is when Satan was kicked out of heaven, out of his power over death, because he had no more spiritual power over death. As long as there was no savior, mankind's greatest idol is death. We center our lives around death. I'm going to die, so I better do this and that. And that's how Satan received worship as the God of this world, because he was he had power over death legally, because God cursed the world, and Christ took that power back through His death and resurrection. But all this is discussed quite in depth, so make sure you check out that episode and the rest of the series, because most people are very deceived on end times events. But some people think this is a future war, and Satan's going to get kicked down, and then there's like a little season before the millennial kingdom. Again, all this stuff is just, it's really wrong. It's really interpreted incorrectly. It's taken out of context. And believe it or not, it was created by the beast to hide its identity. So that's all I'm going to say on it. Go check it out. But the war in heavens in Revelation 12, and it describes Satan being kicked out. And this happened during the cross. The cross is what got Satan basically bound not in the sense that he's not doing anything. Certainly he's actually more active because he knows his time is short. But his spiritual power over death was basically taken away. You no longer have to fear death and therefore fear Satan and give him obedience and try to make it in this world because this is all you got. You don't have to basically obey and worship Satan through indirectly through materialism and through fear of death, because now Christ has offered you freedom to die is gain. And therefore all that fear and worship and attention can go back to God. So Satan's, Satan's done. His power has been cut off. He's been bound. And that is what Revelation 12 describes. Chronologically, it's right after the vision of the woman uh, giving birth. So you have basically the birth of the Messiah and then, yeah, Satan is kicked out because the, the Messiah atones for sin. So it's all, you know, I'm not saying you should read Revelation completely chrono chronologically, but it is another piece of evidence that, again, this is not dealing with some future thing where we're talking about like Battle of Armageddon type of thing or super in the past, pre-Genesis, but rather within the context of the ministry of Jesus. So it's very, very important. Now, another important thing is, if if this is true, which it is, and again, go watch that episode. There's plenty of evidence why this is the correct interpretation, that Satan being bound is, is the crucifixion, is when Jesus basically atoned for sins. If this is true, then the Son was incarnate as Jesus, while Michael was in heaven cleaning things up and kicking Satan out and his fallen angels. Two different people, yet again, doing two different things. Michael is mentioned just briefly in like a kind of far away view, whereas with Jesus, we have an intimate view of the crucifixion, of his ministry, of all the things that he was doing here on earth. So two different people, very clearly so, 
separate, separate people. Now, the woman and the child vision prior to the war in heaven, again, suggests that this is in a chronological order. And why this is important is because, again, just like with Jude, remember what we said in Jude, that Jude mentions Michael by name. Then at the end of the letter, he closes by blessing people in Jesus' name. Well, if, if Jesus was Michael, follow the logic, because it's the same with Revelation. If Jesus was Michael, then Jude would have said, well, and when Jesus atoned or got in a conflict with Satan over the body of Moses, or when he, like he would refer to Christ, because it's, there's only one person being talked about in the letter. But obviously that's not the case. He mentions both of them by their specific personal names. Now, the same thing is happening in Revelation. You have the, the boy that's being born, that's obviously Christ. And then you have the vision of the war in heaven with, with Michael and the angels. Now, why isn't it Jesus or the angel of Yahweh or the son or anything that would identify Christ as the person being in the war with Michael or in the war with Satan and kicking him out of heaven? It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. I mean, it doesn't make sense to describe the birth of the Messiah and then a war that happened, you know, before the creation of the world or a war that's going to happen at the end of the world. When in reality, this is talking about the birth of the Messiah, the ministry of the Messiah, and of course that dethrones Satan from his principality and control over death. Woe to you at the earth because now he's coming down in great fury because he knows his time is short. Well, yeah, because we've been living in the last days since the cross. We've been in tribulation since the cross. Tribulation is not a seven-year thing. It's throughout the church age. We're in the millennium, the time between the ascension where Christ ascended and fulfilled Daniel 7 and when he's returning to give the to give the kingdom back to God the Father and then the triune God will rule within Christ. We're going to look at that in a, in a future episode. It's very, very interesting. But nonetheless, again, another piece of evidence that these are just two different people. It's not the same person. Now, the last response that I have to this is that Michael is a created being. And probably I would say out of all of these, this is just the easiest one, the, the, the best argument. They're all, I think, pretty decent, but they require some thinking. I think this one is probably the easiest uh, to defend and just simply point to. In Daniel 10, verse 13, Daniel is having this vision and conversing with basically various angels. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, the identity of this man that's speaking and referring to Michael as a different person is, it's debatable. Some people say that the person speaking is Jesus, and certainly there are some qualities, like this is a terrifying vision of a man. And the, the qualities of this man are, like his body was like barrel, his face like appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like a gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of the words is like the sound of a multitude. Now, this description is exactly like how John describes Jesus in Revelation. Very, very similar, very similar description. And so the, the way to interpret it is probably this is Jesus in his true form, in his God form. And that would be a very consistent interpretation because John says the same thing that he saw. We don't know the name of this man, but this man is speaking and obviously he has the same appearance as Jesus in Revelation. Again, it's progressive Revelation. We know that in Revelation, John describes the same exact man, burning eyes, burnished bronze, you know, lightning, he's just pure light and power. And that person who he saw speaks to him and says, I'm the living one. I'm the one who died. I am the Alpha and Omega. Okay, well, that's Jesus. But that's, he's obviously seeing him in his glorified form, in his God form. So obviously now working back into the Old Testament, we know John and Daniel are very related books. Daniel probably saw Jesus. 
Now, here's the point, though. In verse 10, 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, he's now referring to somebody separate from himself. One of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, some people say because this, this man is saying that he needed help or he came to help him, that it's not Jesus, because Jesus wouldn't really need help. Well, there's a lot of debate on that. It's not that Jesus needs help, and but maybe the meaning of these passages is not what we think they're saying. There's, there's a different <laughs> angle to it. But nonetheless, that's beyond the point of this particular episode. The point is this, that Michael is a separate person. If you believe this is a vision of Jesus, then obviously that immediately right there proves the point. If you don't believe that this person that Daniel saw is Jesus, then you still have another easy proof that it's not, that Michael is not Jesus. Because he says, one of the chief princes. This is the telling detail, probably I'd say the most important detail, really. It doesn't depend on anything, because now you have a marker for who Michael is. He's one of the chief princes. Now, very important because that means that he is one of other types and kinds of people. He's not one of a kind. He is one of, you know, like many types of probably who knows how many chief princes are, but there's obviously more than one. <laughs> That's the point. And these are archangels, you know, they're principalities, they're rulers of some kind. But now compare this to all the things we know about Jesus being one of a kind. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is monogenes in Greek, in only begotten son, I believe in the KJV, let's see. Yeah, only begotten son. Only, this is monogenes, meaning one of a kind. One of a kind, singularly appointed son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Hebrews 11, verse 17, same thing, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in was in the act of offering up his only son. Well, wait a minute. Again, monogenes, it's it's not... Abraham had Ishmael by this point. Isaac wasn't his only son, but it was the son of the promise. He was the only appointed son that was going to be basically, you know, given the promise. This is what it means. These words do not mean physically only son. Of course, the Isaac situation was a type and shadow for what Jesus would do. I said what Yahweh would do through the body of Jesus many years later. So Jesus is not one of anything. He's not one of princes. He's not one of other principalities. He's one of a kind. He's unique. He's the only begotten. I mean, the only appointed one. If you remember from Hebrews, we looked at the meaning of only begotten. It's not created. It's not generated from infinity. It just means appointed. That's how the author of Hebrews applies the term to Jesus. It is appointment. He was the, he's the chosen one. He's the only anointed being, person, that there is salvation through, the only name, the only way to the Father. Very important. But there's no association of Michael throughout any scripture, or any Old Testament, New Testament, to God, nor to pre-existence. There's nothing that we would suggest, well, Michael probably existed. No. He's one of several chief princes, whereas Jesus is one of a kind. If Jesus was Michael, then what we're saying is that Jesus is one of other equal types of beings. Now, we know there's only one uncreated being. So follow the logic here. Again, very important to build a case. There's only one uncreated being. That's Yahweh, God. If Jesus is Michael, then he is not created. Do you see the impact of your beliefs and how believing something can lead you into great error? Because if Jesus is Michael, then what Daniel writes here is that Michael is one of the chief princes, meaning there are others like him in function, in authority. So he's not one of a kind, he's not unique, meaning Jesus would also be among other people like him that have the same level of authority, same level of whatever. He's part of a group, but he's 
no longer self-existent if that's the case. He's no longer the self-existent Yahweh God of the Old Testament, which was what we clearly saw through all of the previous episodes, that Jesus is Yahweh. Very, very important. So if you believe that Jesus is Michael, then you have some real problems because especially like in Daniel, we just saw, these things really put you in a corner. You you have no way to explain. Again, if you believe this is Jesus that Daniel saw, then obviously there's two different people. So boom, there you go. If you don't believe it's Jesus, okay. Daniel also writes that Michael is one of the chief princes. Well, Jesus is not one of anything. He's God. He's unique. He's completely unique. And we know that other places about Jesus' authority, like for example, Hebrews 1, verse 4 through 5, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is what we looked at in greater detail in a previous episode. And again, it's it's testifying to Jesus is unique. He's not like the angels, i.e. Michael, the archangel. Michael was never called a son. Michael was, ne- was never begotten to be the name that people worship and come to the Father through. Michael had his role. He has some level of authority, but he's not one of a kind. He's a chief prince, one of many. Jesus is not one of many. So that alone should tell you that people who believe these things are wrong. And if they're wrong, what does that mean? That means they've been lied to. That means they've been deceived. Like Jehovah's Witnesses, you've been deceived that Jesus is not God. You're you're in a false religion. Seventh-day Adventist, you're not reading the Bible correctly if you believe that Archangel Michael is Jesus, because he can't be. He's not one of many types of princes. Jesus is one of a kind, very clear. But let's put this together. Jesus and Michael are distinguished by name, meaning proper names, and names don't change. The angel of Yahweh didn't have a personal name, even though he revealed that he had one, but he wasn't going to just tell you what it is, at least not at first. But he was identified as God and from God. Very important. Because Jesus, one of the aspects of Jesus' ministry was like letting people know, listen, I'm from God. I have a special, unique existence. I'm not just a prophet. I'm literally from God. Because I am God. That's basically the point. The angel of Yahweh also has a lot of authority that, that Michael doesn't. We saw in the rebuking of Satan, two parallel situations. One in Jude and one, um, I forget where we looked at, but yeah, I, it was in um, Zechariah. That's where it was, Zechariah 3, where there's a vision of Joshua and the angel of Yahweh rebukes Satan. But then when Jude talks about Michael rebuking Satan over Moses, Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not going to rebuke you. I'm not going to presume to be, you know, giving you a judgment. Who am I to have authority to judge you? But then you have the angel of Yahweh judging the Egyptians, the, the Sodomites, Gomorrah. He's pronouncing judgment. He's receiving worship. Very different being. I mean, there's so many things that the angel of Yahweh does that Michael just doesn't do. You also have the war in heaven, which again, just like with Jude, we have the Messiah being born. And then you have the mention of Michael. Well, if Jesus and Michael were the same. Why is Michael being named as Michael at that point? If if we're reading this just plainly, if Jesus was Michael, it makes no sense to mention Michael by name. It would make sense to mention the boy that was born, to mention Jesus, to name, mention the angel of the Lord, to mention the ruler with a with a iron staff, rod of iron. Nothing to connect Michael to Jesus within that same context. He's mentioning two different people. That's how you interpret it. There are two different people there. Very clearly so. There's no contextual clues or reasoning why we would say those are two different people or two two of the same people in Revelation 12. But that's because they are two different people. The son 
was incarnate in Jesus, atoning for sins. Michael was in heaven, kicking Satan out and the fallen angels that were with him. Last but not least, Michael is a created being because he's one of a category. There's only one God and one self-existent being, and that's Yahweh. He's not part of a category. So do you see how that works? So if Michael is part of a category, then he's a created being. Doesn't matter how glorious, doesn't matter, you know, whatever. He's an archangel. He's a created being. He's part of a category. If Jesus and Michael are the same, then Jesus is no longer the self-existent God that he claimed to be. But that's what he claims to be, so he's not Michael. So Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses and even Seventh-day Adventists, which I'm surprised that they believe this because Seventh-day Adventists should know better. But then again, you have Ellen White and all these other things that I talk about in my end time series, why Ellen White is not a prophet, why she was wrong, why investigative judgment is just a terrible doctrine that you need to run away from. It's just really bad. So a lot of people are very deceived by things because they don't take things into context. They don't build a proper case and they just don't consider these things. Now, one more objection with this whole Archangel Michael thing is, is in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, about the return of Jesus. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So the reason I save this objection for laughs is because it is used often to say, look, see, he's got a a voice of an archangel. So therefore he must be Archangel Michael. Well, so far, I hopefully, if I've done my job correctly with this episode, you will see why that's wrong. It's poor exegesis. You're not building a case for anything. What does it mean that he's descending with the voice of an archangel? Well, in the context of everything we've just put, that Jesus is not an archangel. Archangels are part of a category. Jesus doesn't have a category. He's God. He doesn't have, he's not part of many things. He's one of a kind. He is the uncreated God. So what does that mean in context? Well, it means, it doesn't mean he's an archangel. That's first off, but it means one of two things. He'll either be announced by an archangel, meaning there'll be some special announcer like, hey, (laughs) who knows what he's going to say, but here we go. Battle cry or everybody you know, repent, whatever. Or he himself will have a commanding shout when he appears that people could relate to, like, oh, the voice of an archangel, like, wow, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be a really powerful voice that he's going to come down with. It doesn't mean that he is the archangel Michael or that he is an archangel. These are very taken out of context. So again, everything has to be read in context. So if somebody says that when the Lord himself descends with a shout of the archangel, and that's proof that Jesus is Michael, point them to this episode or tell them, no, that just means he's probably going to descend with somebody announcing him because God is coming with not just himself, but with his angels and other people. Remember all the things in the the verses about the rapture which again, I talk about in my end time series, it's all the angels doing the work. Jesus sends the angels to pick up people and meet him in the air. So he's coming with angels. It's not unreasonable to believe that he's going to have a very powerful angel, one of the chief princes, perhaps, because there are many chief princes, to announce him when he arrives. When he, uh, arrives. Or he will himself announce himself with a very powerful voice. Those two explanations are much more reasonable and based in sound hermeneutics than to take this out of context and say, oh yeah, Jesus is an archangel. See, it's proof. So that is not a good way to do things. So I hope that gets a little clearer. But the last thing I want to talk about is the principle of agency. And this is the idea that basically a person's agent is regarded as that person. So there's some sort of, you know, and there, there's basis for that. And we'll look at that in the Bible. But again, it's it's a little different than what people believe. Now, Unitarians use this 
principle of agency idea to say that, well, Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh is not a separate person from Yahweh. He's just like a, like an extension of Yahweh. Yahweh is still one person. You know, the, the Jews who believed for hundreds of years that Yahweh was multipersonal, they were just wrong. They were misinterpreting all the things that happened with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all this stuff where the angel of the Lord claimed to be God and receives worship. Now they, they're just saying, okay, sorry about that. We just had some people over and <laughs> want to make sure they don't make any noise. But anyway, the principle of agency is used by Unitarians to basically argue that the angel of Yahweh is just an extension of Yahweh. He's not, you know, he's, he's not a separate person. That's also Yahweh. Very important. Now, we know the basis for this, and there is some basis, but as you'll soon see, it's flawed to apply it to the angel of Yahweh. But there is basis for the idea of the principle of agency. For example, in Deuteronomy, Moses speaks like on behalf of Yahweh a couple times, almost using his own personal, like he's saying I, when he means God. So there's this whole idea that Moses is kind of speaking on behalf of God. He's the principal, he's the agent. And it's okay for him to do that because he's, he's just speaking on behalf of God. However, even though there's some biblical basis for that, and we'll look at some examples, it doesn't compare to all the times that the angel of Yahweh was interacting with humanity and claiming to be God, claiming to be, to take credit for God's actions, receiving worship. Again, that's, that's the hardest one to refute. If you're, if you're a Unitarian, that is impossible to refute. The angel of Yahweh received worship. You do, God does not receive worship by proxy unless that proxy is also God. Do you see the point here? That, that is just not ever going to happen. We are going to bow down and worship an extension that's, that's sort of just a messenger of God. But that, that thing that you're bowing down to, that person, whatever they are, if they're not God, then that is a major problem. Major range of problem. And again, you can do mental and biblical gymnastics to try to justify that, but you really can't if you're a Unitarian. You really can't. The angel Yahweh refers to himself as Yahweh and also to Yahweh in the third person, interchangeably, constantly throughout the, the, the verses that we looked at. And so this is just a real problem for Unitarians. Now, another thing is that this particular claim of, well, the angel of Yahweh is just a, an agent. It's a principle of agency. He's not really actually Yahweh, like a separate person. He's, he's just an extension. What does that really mean? Like, really, what does it mean? And it's in, at the end of the day, it's unfalsifiable, meaning that no amount of evidence that you could show a person who believes this is enough to satisfy them. Because they can say, well, oh, it's just, you know, it's just an extension. It's not really a unique person that's separate from Yahweh, but also Yahweh. Meaning they're not reading the text as it naturally presents itself. Because if you read it naturally, it creates a mystery. And so we can't have that. We have to have, we have to put God in a box in some way that we can understand him. And so we have to twist these things to fit our mental model of God instead of really just taking them plainly and accepting the mystery that they come with, which is revealed in Christ. Now in Deuteronomy 18.22 we know about prophets. When a prophet speaks in the name of the of the Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So prophets speak in the name of Yahweh. We also know in Samuel, when David was basically um, with Goliath, he says, this is chapter 17, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh, of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So David was coming in the name of Yahweh against Goliath. So you have prophets. The kings were in the name of Yahweh. There was a sense of like agency, right? Very important. But did David ever claim to be God? Did the prophets ever claim to be God? Did the prophets ever claim... God's actions, whenever they passed judgment, whenever they brought judgment, when Elijah brought fire down from heaven, did he claim to do that? Or was he just basically a vessel for God to do that? 
The answer is that no agent anywhere in the Bible ever did what the angel of Yahweh did, which is claim to be God, claim God's action, and receive worship again. That's the hardest one to refute if you're a Unitarian. It really is. Now, people will say, well, what about Moses? In Exodus 4, verse 16, it says, He shall speak to you, this is Aaron, He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be to him as God, or you shall be as God to him. Later in Exodus in chapter 7, it says, and, the, and Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So people say, well, you see, Moses was like God. He's an agent. He was just a special agent of God, and he was like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron was kind of his, his speaker. So are we to take from this that Moses and the angel of Yahweh are kind of the same type of messenger? The answer is no, because Moses never claimed to be God. In all the things that Moses did through the Exodus, not once did Moses attribute that to himself. In fact, actually, in Numbers 16, verse 28, he says this, And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. Moses, if you read about him, he was very meek, very meek and humble man. In fact, he doubted God five times before he finally agreed. You know, he put God to the test. <laughs> he he was famous for that. He was just very meek kind of guy. And in Numbers 16, he says, listen, so you know, even though I'm an agent of God, this has not been of my own accord. So now compare that to the angel of Yahweh. Moses never receives worship never claims anything over God's actions, even though he was involved in the Exodus, parting the Red Sea, escorting the Israelites to the Promised Land. He didn't get to the Promised Land, but he got them almost there, right? He did all these things. He did, you know, various works for Pharaoh, brought the plagues. Not once did he claim ownership of that. None of the apostles gave Moses that ownership. They gave the angel of Yahweh ownership, and they gave Jesus Ownership. And remember, angel of Yahweh was escorting them in the desert. The apostles said what? That the, the Jews, the Israelites, rebelled against who? Jesus. Jesus is the angel of Yahweh. So we have scripture itself in the New Testament revealing that the angel of Yahweh is actually Christ. It's a pre-incarnate form of Christ. But Moses never claimed to be God, was never worshipped never took credit for God's actions, even though he was made to be like God. So again, taking things out of context, what God's saying here is, listen, you're going to have authority in front of Pharaoh to do all these signs and wonders. Of course, God is doing the wonders through him. But Moses is, is the agent who is going to be given some level of authority to do these signs and wonders. And Aaron's going to be his prophet because Moses is a meek man. He doesn't He's probably an introvert, so that's funny. But Aaron is his prophet, so to speak, like the person who's going to do speaking on his behalf. So God is appointing these people to do various things. But that doesn't mean that they are the same as the angel of Yahweh who has God's name in him, who speaks of himself as God, but is also separate from Yahweh and who is called Jesus, who is attributed to Jesus by the apostles in the New Testament. So, conclusion on this principle of agency thing. Well, God had many agents in the Bible. However, the angel of Yahweh is a unique agent. The principle of agency cannot be applied to the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh is God, and people believed that he was God in the Old Testament, not just some extension like Moses. And that's very clear from the angel of Yahweh episode we looked at. And the people of the New Testament believed that Christ was the one who was leading the Israelites, meaning Christ was the angel of Yahweh. So it was a separate person because, of course, Christ is Yahweh, but separate from the Father, which is what is revealed in the New Testament. The Jews believed in two powers in heaven for centuries. So this was a traditionally culturally held belief that God was multi-personal. Very, very important. So to say that it's just an agent, just like every other agent, to make the angel of Yahweh equal to 
something like Moses or David or the prophets is just not sound reasoning because he's a unique agent, one of a kind. Monogenes, just like Michael is one of the chief princes, can't be Jesus because Jesus is one of a kind. Angel Yahweh is one of a kind. He can't be like Moses. He's not Moses. He's not like David because he's one of a kind. Do you get the pattern that we're pointing to? One of a kind. That one of a kind is Jesus because Jesus is Yahweh. So remember that Jesus claimed to be God. Remember that all the apostles, Peter, John, Paul, Thomas, they all believed that Jesus was God, i.e. the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, in human form. So that was not a problem for them with their monotheism because they believed that, G that Yahweh was multipersonal. There's no conflict there. So Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, you have to re-examine what you're being taught because you're being deceived. Very important. The Archangel Michael is not a pre-incarnate Christ. They're two very different people. And the principle of agency doesn't apply to the angel of Yahweh. Because the angel of Yahweh is a unique being. Just like Jesus is unique. He's a unique being. Now, of course, God is one being. But Jesus is both human as a human being and God. So he's unique. He is a unique being. And the angel of Yahweh is unique. He's a unique type of messenger that claims to be God, that takes credit for God's actions, that receives worship. There's no other messenger or angel or archangel or prophet or king or whatever that has any of the things and qualities that the angel of Yahweh does. So if somebody tells you the archangel Michael is Jesus, just point him to this video and say, read your Bible. <laughs>